The Da Da Di Da Da Code by Robert Rankin. Chapter 31. Johnny Hooker shuddered. Someone walk over your grave? asked O'Fagan. As if I'd know, said Johnny. Anyway, said O'Fagan, I'm glad you're not screw back. What? asked Johnny, and not without reason. Well, said O'Fagan, being a publican, you have to remember people's names and faces and all kinds of minutiae about them, so you can name them and mention details and stuff. So the punters think that since you remember these things, you must like them. Which, of course, you don't. You only want their money. How candid, said Johnny. How charming. We aim to please, sir. And the point? Johnny asked. Well, said O'Fagan once more, you were introduced to me yesterday as Charlie Hawtrey's castrato brother, but you're not speaking in a high voice now, so I assume that your nuts must have grown back. Ah, said Johnny. Right, said Johnny. That would probably be it, said Johnny also. See, I don't miss stuff, said O'Fagan. I'm on the ball, me, all the time. On the ball, get it? Not really, said Johnny. If you're so good on continuity, said Johnny, perhaps you can tell me whether I've had my lunch here yet. No, you haven't. O'Fagan flourished a menu. Don't get me going on pub grub, he continued. I'll try not to, Johnny perused the menu. Do you ever feel, asked O'Fagan, whilst Johnny was engaged in this perusal, that everyone except yourself seems to be having a really interesting life and that somehow you've been left out? Johnny looked up from his perusal. All the time, he answered. Well, up until recently. Well, yes, I suppose so, yes. So, said O'Fagan, what's it like then? Because me, I live on the cutting edge, life in the fast lane and all that kind of business. I think I'll have a cheese sandwich, said Johnny. Oh, very adventurous. Yes, you're right, said Johnny. I'll have the cheese and pickle. Do you sometimes think that life is going on all around you, but somehow you're not taking part? Isn't that the same question you just asked? There are subtle differences. I think the problem with life is that most of us never get out of life what we'd like to get. We don't even ask for much. But things always conspire. People always conspire to cheat, or trick, or fool us out of what we want. You think so? said Johnny. I know so, said O'Fagan. Let's use this sandwich as an example. Cheese and pickle, you said. O'Fagan got his notepad out. Was that on white bread or brown? White, said Johnny. Butter or margarine? Marge, said Johnny. Cheddar or Jarlsberg? Cheddar. Branston or Major Grays? Branston. O'Fagan did tickings. The cheese and pickle are off, said he. The bread is all stale, and we're out of margarine, and the cat ate all the pickle. I can do you a steak pie and chips. Johnny Hooker grinned and turned his menu toward O'Fagan. On it, the steak pie and chips were circled. Did you scrawl that on my menu? O'Fagan asked. Johnny nodded. While you were just explaining to me what the problem with life is, said he, with this souvenir pen with the top shaped like a dinosaur. Was all of this supposed to mean something? O'Fagan asked. I think so, said Johnny. Recent events have taught me that everything means something. Everything must be done as I want it done, said Inspector Westlake into a telephone receiver. If something goes wrong after that, then I will take the blame but I will only carry the can if it's my can. Do I make myself understood? At the other end of the line was the extra special operations unit, 
that above-top-secret special operations unit that deals with all the high-security whatnots that come up and someone has to deal with when all the usual special operations units are saying that's not within our jurisprudence. The man in overall charge of the extra-special operations unit was an English gentleman. He wore a gray pullover, a checked shirt, and a knitted tie. He sported a curious beard and smoked a pipe. He had appeared regularly on the Open University during the 1980s when the Open University was a channel only watched by British spies who knew all the code words and what the Open University was really all about. Of course, we all know now. The gentleman's name was Thompson. These gentlemen are always called Thompson. There have been generations of them, all doing the same job, father to son, father to son, since around 1790, apparently. Give me the gen one more time, me old cocksparrow said Thompson. I want a ring of steel placed around Gunnersbury Park, said Inspector Westlake. Important talks are to be held there this Sunday. Some queer occurrences have come up, and I want to be 100% certain that those at the talks will be completely secure. Which is why you called the Extra Special Operations Unit, said Thompson. For the record, how did you get our number? Was it from a card through your door, a card in the newsagent's window, or yellow pages? I'm a Freemason, said Inspector Westlake. Couldn't you tell by the way your telephone rang? Only testing, said Thompson. We have to be very careful in this game, I can tell you. We have to know who's who and what's what. I've faxed you a map, said Inspector Westlake. The layout of Gunnersbury Park, the location of the big house, and the room within where the talks will be held. I have it here, said Thompson. Who did? It looks reasonably straightforward. We'll run a fence around the entire perimeter, 20 feet high, electrified, of course of course. We'll lay down minefields, laser trips, braggers, and flame wasps. I'll have fifty men in full camo dig around the perimeter. We'll put a couple of silent birds above. Silent birds? Inspector Westlake asked. Stealth helicopters. You can't see them, but they can see you. Splendid. And who will be footing the bill for all this? And you wish to take overall control of this operation yourself? We can supply a management team. It is my call, said the inspector. My watch. Nothing and no one is going to mess with this operation. Nothing and no one is going to enter that park without my approval. Nothing and no one is going to endanger the lives of those at this meeting. Do I make myself clear? Utterly clear, said Thompson. All forces and security procedures will be in place within twelve hours. You have nothing to fear, Brother Inspector. Nothing and no one will penetrate security. Nothing and no one will be allowed to enter the park that could in any way endanger the talks or those engaged in them. Parked behind the big house, under the shade of a tree, unblemished by the earlier gunfire, unnoticed by all concerned, was a white Ford Transit van. The side doors, and indeed the rear doors of this van, were open, and at the behest of a chap dressed in a top hat and red ringmaster's coat, two dwarves were unloading a number of boxes. The dwarves had an odd look to them. There was something quaint and old-fashioned about their attire. In fact, it had a positively antique look to it as if these dwarves had stepped straight out of the Regency period. About, say, 1790. Hurry along now, said the ringmaster, an odd enough body himself at close quarters, what with the made-up face and the periwig that showed beneath his top hat. Down the secret passage and into the storeroom beneath. The dwarves made haste, but not without difficulty, for the boxes they carried were heavy. Heavy, wooden, dusty, and very old-looking they were and printed with antique lettering upon the sides of these cases were the words Acme Heirloom Company. This way up. Chapter 32 
Well, I haven't said too much for a while. The voice of Mr. Giggles was once more at Johnny's ear. Johnny didn't welcome this voice and did what he could to ignore it. Get that down and let's be going, prattled Mr. Giggles. Whatever the situation, it is approaching that time when it becomes out of control. Put your faith in me, buddy boy. Tierra del Fuego awaits. Now that I remember it, said O'Fagan to Johnny, did you want to buy a ticket? I know I am putting what is left of my sanity at risk by asking, said Johnny. But a ticket for what? For tonight's benefit gig. Dry rotter playing. There are girls drum and fife band. Should be worth watching. Dry rot are heavy rock, said Johnny. I think I did mention this before. Possibly, said O'Fagan. But it's odds on that I wasn't listening. Tickets are a tenner, by the way. Or four for fifty quid. I won't need a ticket, said Johnny. You will if you want to get in. I'm in the band, said Johnny. Nobody told me it was a transvestite drum and fife band. This puts an entirely different complexion on things. I'll have to charge you twelve pounds. I'm with the band, said Johnny. Dry rot. I'm the lead guitarist. Johnny Hooker is the lead guitarist, said O'Fagan. Which I find confusing, because I'm sure I heard that he's dead. I'm his replacement. Ah, very pleased to meet you. O'Fagan stuck his hand out across the bar counter for a shake. So Johnny shook it. And allow me to thank you for your generosity. Johnny Hooker shook his head now and said, What? For donating your fee to the pub rebuilding fund. The 500 pounds will come in very handy. 500? said Johnny. You only ever pay 50. Well, you always promise to, but you always say that you don't have any change and that you'll pay next time. Johnny paused. Well, at least that's what I've heard, from a very accurate source. You've certainly never paid any band 500 pounds. O'Fagan did that nose-tapping thing. I have, according to my accounts and tax returns, said he. And he went off to serve a gaunt gentleman of aristocratic bearing who wore long black beard and a curious young woman with bright red hair who wore long rubber gloves. It's a pity, said Johnny. Are you addressing me? asked Mr. Giggles. Let's say yes, Johnny said. I am. And it's a pity that the solving of the da-da-dee-da-da code business seems unlikely to bring me any financial reward. Because if it did, I would most certainly use it as a deposit on buying a pub. It seems there are fortunes to be made in that game. You'd hate it, giggled Mr. Giggles. Always starts well in the early evening when folk are pleasant and sober. But by chucking out time, those same pleasant and sober folk have all turned into foul-mouthed drunks who don't want to go home at all. You'd hate them in no time. The reconstructed saloon bar door opened to admit the passage of Paul. He strolled over to Johnny and leaned upon the bar counter. I love all this plastic sheeting, said Paul. It looks as if Christo has turned this pub into an installation. Any luck? Johnny asked. Regarding what? You know exactly what. What I whispered to you about when Inspector Westlake told me to leave the pub. Following the body? Asked Paul. That's what I asked you to do. And to find out what the pathologist said. Yes, said Paul, and it could have well put my job at risk. Paul, said Johnny, I never knew exactly why you decided to join the police force. For the uniform and the violence, said Paul, same as everyone else. Perhaps, but I do not see you as a copper, as it were. You are a musician. You know you are. You're right, 
Paul took off his helmet and placed it on the bar counter. As he did so, Johnny noticed that the interior of Paul's helmet was not lined with tinfoil. Johnny straightened his headwear. He had no intention of taking that off. You are right, Paul continued. I joined for the uniform, but it turned out to be dark blue, not black. I'd always thought they were black. Even the body armor is dark blue. Apparently you have to be in special ops to get a black uniform. And as for the violence, it's like sex. Not the kind of sex I usually have, said Johnny. You usually have no sex, said Paul. But what I mean is that sex is great. I love sex. But sex every day? Johnny sighed. Mr. Giggles sighed. Every day, said Paul. You get tired of it. You really do. It's not a treat anymore. After a few weeks of laying into Joe Public with my extendable truncheon, the novelty began to wear off. I'm so sorry to hear it, said Johnny, who wasn't. So, you augment it with a bit of torture down in the cells, or interrogation, as I believe it's otherwise called. But eventually you get bored with that. So then you're into your vigilante, mad cop, street justice scenarios, arresting drug lords, taking them into the woods and executing them, that kind of thing. But then that pales, and what are you into then? Cannibalism? said Johnny. Exactly. But soon you find yourself getting bored with that, so... Stop, said Johnny. Please, stop. Exactly, said Paul. So I'm thinking of stopping being a policeman. I thought perhaps I'd become a doctor or something. A doctor, said Johnny, without enthusiasm. Well, I'd expect you'd get the chance to perform radical new procedures and insane medical experiments on people once you'd got bored with taking out appendixes, of course. Did you follow the body? Johnny asked. To the morgue? I certainly did. And? said Johnny. I listened at the door. Then later I slipped in and nicked stuff. Top man, said Johnny. What did you nick? A ham sandwich, said Paul. And a thermos flask. I haven't opened that yet, so I don't know what's inside. But it's at least half full. Johnny Hooker gave Paul a certain look. Don't ever look at me like that again, said Paul, or I will be forced to forget those long years of our friendship and experiment on you with a really horrible-looking piece of medical kit that I also nicked. Johnny Hooker sighed. All right, said Paul. I listened, and this is what I heard. And Paul related unto Johnny all that he had overheard of the conversation between Inspector Westlake and the pathologist. All that stuff about mummified bodies, antique clothing, and the fingerprints matching, and everything. About those fingerprints, said Johnny. Did they say whose fingerprints they were? Not on file, apparently. And then they did a DNA test. Did you know that everyone's DNA is put on file when they're born? With or without their parents' consent? It's been going on for the last 20 years. I can't say I'm surprised, said Johnny. But no match, I assume? Paul shook his head and, with his helmet now off, got his long hair trailing in Johnny's beer. Which reminds me said Paul, removing his hair and wringing it out. Buy me a beer. Did you bring me anything? Johnny asked, apart from the sandwiches and a thermos flask. They're not for you. But I did nick this. Paul drew out one of those plastic evidence bags with the sealy up tops. Contents of the Pockets of the Deceased Splendid, said Johnny, and he unsealed the sealy up bit and tipped the contents onto the bar counter. Beer, said Paul. Johnny hailed O'Fagan. A pint of King Billy for Paul, said Johnny. Excellent, said O'Fagan, and many thanks to you, Paul, for your generous contribution to tonight's fundraiser. 
Paul opened his mouth to reply, but Johnny stopped him. O'Fagan pulled Paul's pint. Weird old couple over there, he said as he pulled, throwing a small shoulder shrug in the appropriate direction. Johnny examined this something or other. Chap with aristocratic bearing and a long black beard and some spaced-out redhead with long rubber gloves on. They smell like an old dog blanket and talk like the characters out of a carry-on movie. Which one? Paul asked. Johnny shook his head. Silly boy, he said. Johnny shook his head. Silly boy, he said. Well, said O'Fagan, now that you ask, what was that one that had that bloke in it? I liked that one, said Paul, but wasn't that bloke in two of them? Johnny Hooker ignored the coming conversation and examined the items that lay upon the bar counter. A lace handkerchief with the initials SG embroidered upon it, a horn snuff box, its lid inlaid with the same initials in silver, Johnny opened the snuff box and took a little sniff, then sneezed all over Paul. Pardon me, said Johnny. There were a number of coins, a silver sovereign, some pennies and half pennies. All looked new, but all dated from the 1780s. Johnny pocketed these coins. There was a wad of what appeared to be some kind of sweetmeat wrapped in waxy paper and a brass something or other. It looked a bit like a miniature flute. A slim brass cylinder with a hole at one end and a kind of flattened mouthpiece at the other with a narrow slit above it, or below it, depending on which way up you held it. Johnny held it with the narrow slit upwards, put the mouthpiece to his lips, and gave a little blow. No sound issued from the slim brass tube. Johnny blew once more, and once more no sound came out. Johnny took a really deep breath and gave a really big blow and every optic behind the bar counter and every empty glass stacked and racked upon stacker and racker and every single window that had escaped the assault of the paddy wagon exploded. Wah! went O'Fagan, ducking and cursing and spitting and effing and blinding. Paul looked towards Johnny Hooker. Johnny Hooker shrugged and went off to the toilet. Inspector Westlake returned from the toilet. The toilet at the police station. He returned to his office returned to his office, locked the door, sat himself down at his desk. Inspector Westlake had one of those sealy-up-topped evidence bags. His had papers in it. Papers that had been taken from the pocket of a frocked 18th-century coat that clothed a mummified body. The one in the wall cabinet jobby. The one with the Johnny Hooker toe tag. Inspector Westlake spread the papers before him on his desk and examined them through an overlarge magnifying glass. Tiny, tiny writing, said Inspector Westlake. Although, he held the paper up to the light. The watermark is clear as clear, as if the paper is brand new, but it's dated 1790. Curious indeed. He further examined and hmmed and indeeded as he did so. A musical score, he said. Complete notation for a single instrument. What, though? Ah, an organ by the look of it. And the libretto, but surely not a song as such. These words do not scan. It is more as if the music underscores a spoken text. Ah, spoken by several different speakers according to the notation. I see, I see. And Inspector Westlake read the text aloud. And then he read the text aloud again. And then Inspector Westlake cried, No, no, this must not be. This must not come to pass. Oh, no. Such evil. 
such evil. And for a moment, his voice cracked and tears welled up in his eyes. And then he cried, no, the end of the world, the apocalypse. Oh, no. Chapter 33. O'Fagan did weeping and wailing, and also gnashing of teeth, which did have a suitably apocalyptic quality about it. Woe unto the house of O'Fagan, cried O'Fagan, rending his garments also, for it is undone. What have I done, O lord of the old buttonhole? Lord of the old buttonhole, said Johnny, who had lately returned from the gents. Or, more accurately, they hastily ordered portaloo that had been deposited at the rear of the pub to temporarily replace the gents that had been destroyed by the paddy wagon. It's a publican thing, O'Fagan explained. But what of my glasses? Oh, no. Juggernaut, said Paul, rattled the glasses off the shelves. Juggernaut? O'Fagan made fists of his fingers and threatened the sky with them. Not bloody juggernauts. This was a sign, a sign from the heavens. Paul looked at Johnny. Johnny just shrugged. What is it, Lord? O'Fagan asked, his fists now praying palms. What has your humble servant done to displease you? What? What? O'Fagan did cockings of the ears. Is he getting an answer? Johnny asked. I think he is, said Paul. I wonder, said Johnny. Oh, yes, Lord, yes said O'Fagan. Raise the entry charge and put up the price of pints? I understand. Precisely what I was wondering, said Johnny. While I'm on the hotline to God, said O'Fagan to Johnny, do you want me to ask him to clear up your skin condition so you can take off all those elastoplasts? No, thanks, said Johnny. I can manage. You might have a word with your God about getting him a girlfriend, said Paul. Does your God arrange things like that? Let's use this ashtray as an offering plate. Bung in a fiver and I'll phrase a request. Paul did not oblige, and O'Fagan took himself off in search of the broom. You did that, said Paul. I never did, said Johnny. You did too, with that brass whistle. Don't be silly, said Johnny. I'm not, said Paul. I already had a little blow of it in the squad car driving over here. It blew out the windscreen. Why didn't you tell me this? What, and miss all this? Johnny Hooker checked his pint. It had somehow survived intact and appeared to be free of glass chippings. What are we going to do? He asked Paul. I assume that we are playing here tonight. Damn right, said Paul. We're getting paid 50 quid for it. Ah, said Johnny. Ah, said Paul. Never mind, said Johnny. So we are playing. Are we meeting the rest of the lads here or what? Here, said Paul. They'll be here in about an hour. And in rock and roll time? Two hours, said Paul. Six hours, said Thompson of ESOU. Six hours from now, which will be... "'Midnight, sir?' said a young and eager constable. He was, however, a special operations constable, and so he wore a black uniform. "'And what is your name?' "'Constable Cartwright, sir,' the constable saluted. "'Cartwright, eh? As in Bonanza?' "'Da-da-dee-da-da-dee-da-da-dee-da, Bonanza?' Thompson da da dee da da that legendary theme. His team died on with him. "'No, sir,' said Constable Cartwright. "'Shame,' said Thompson.' I was always a fan of Haas myself. Big old gentle giant of a man, played, if I recall, and I do, by Dan Blocker. A fine character actor. Looked a bit like Tor Johnson. But then, so many of them did. There was a moment of silence. Sir, said Constable Cartwright, breaking it. Yes, Constable, said Thompson. Why exactly is this task force being put into operation? Good question, said Thompson. And he did a bit of strutting. 
he strutted on a tiny stage before an easel affair, which had a cloth-shrouded board upon it, and he did his strutting before an ensembled company of special operations bobbies, all black-clad and useful-looking, and all in a kind of bunker briefing room deep beneath Mornington Crescent Underground Station. The assembled company numbered near to 100, so it was a fair-sized bunker briefing room. It had a coffee machine at the rear end, next to the door, beside the fire extinguishers. "'Jolly good question, Constable,' said Thompson. And he did the flourishing, whipping away of the cloth routine. And his whipping away exposed a map of Gunnersbury Park. "'Oh,' went Constable Cartwright. And, "'Oh, ee,' went all the other constables present. Special constables, for they just loved a map. "'Perimeter,' said Thompson." producing a little stick from somewhere and tracking the perimeter with it. Fifty men, one hundred yard intervals. General electric miniguns. Night sights. You will all wear night vision spectacles. Ornamental pond. He gave the location a tap. Three frogmen, two down, one up. Surface-to-air, shoulder-mounted missiles. Doric temple. Three men. Machine gun nest. Japanese garden. Dig in a network of slit trenches here. The pitch and putt. I want that sewn with landmines. We'll give the Hun a run for his money, eh? The Hun? asked Constable Cartwright. Are you acting as spokesman for the assembled company? Thompson asked. Not as such, sir. It's just that I'm the only constable who has so far been identified by name. And a damn fine name, too. Who's that chap next to you? Me? asked Constable Cassidy. No. Other chap? Me? asked Constable Rogers. Next to you. Me? asked Constable Deputy Dog. Yes, you. Didn't I go to Cambridge with your father? No, that was my father, said Constable Milky Barkid. Editor's note. That's enough now. Thought so. Any questions? Yes, sir, said Constable Cartwright. Why is this task force being put into operation? Glad you asked that, Constable, said Thompson. Here we have a building known as the Big House. It is also known as Gunnersbury Park Museum and it has a real nice lady called Joan working on reception, but you will not go bothering Joan. I will liaise with Joan directly myself. Do I make myself understood? Yes, sir, said one and all, saluting. Regarding security of the big house, you will disregard anything that might have been relayed to you, via rumor, or jungle drums, as it were. Then Inspector Westlake, on secondment from the Branfield Constabulary, will be in charge of this operation. You will answer to me. Take all your orders from me. Do I make myself clear? Any questions? Yes, sir, said Constable Cartwright. Why is this task force being put into operation? Good question, Constable. Now, I want a 50-man squad inside the big house. You will be the lucky lads testing the new electronic camouflage suits. Our backroom boffins have ironed out most of the glitches, and these suits will cloak you in a mantle of invisibility. Ooh, chorused the constables, who may indeed have been lovers of a map but who were brought almost to the point of orgasm at the prospect of invisibility. Sir, said Constable Cartwright, can I be put on duty in the big house? Good question, Constable. Yes, you can. And take those other aforementioned constables with you. We only have five invisibility suits. I lied about there being fifty. Sorry. So the big house team will just have to be you five. Ah, went the disappointed constables. Fab, gear, and groovy went Constables Cartwright, Cassidy, Rogers, Deputy Dog, and Milky Bar Kid. Every constable will be issued with a helmet-mounted night-vision camera so that I can monitor all movements from the control room here from where I will direct operations. Any questions? Yes, sir. Why is this task 
began Constable Cartwright. "'Yes, sir,' said O'Fagan, saluting and marching up and down behind the bar counter. "'Why is he doing that?' Paul asked. Johnny shook his head. "'Let's pray that we never find out,' he said. "'What time is it now?' "'Getting on eight o'clock.' Doesn't time fly when you're having sex with two Thai girls who think you're the greatest bass player since Herbie Flowers? Oh, dear, said Johnny. Oh, dear, asked Paul. My guitar, said Johnny. It's at my house. How am I going to play? Paul made grinnings at Johnny. I'm one step ahead of you there. Just check this out. And he hailed O'Fagan. Yes, sir, said O'Fagan, marching up and saluting. Why are you doing that? Paul asked. O'Fagan whispered in Paul's ear. "'That is so brilliant,' said Paul. "'What?' went Johnny. O'Fagan grinned. "'Do you still have that guitar?' Paul asked. O'Fagan grinned some more. "'Do you?' Paul asked. O'Fagan did some more grinning. "'That's not really working for me,' said Paul. "'Sorry,' said O'Fagan. "'I'm just practicing. We have a group called Dry Rot playing later. They're a mime act.' Paul ignored O'Fagan, but rephrased his question. Do you still have that old guitar in the case in the beer cellar? he asked. I do, said O'Fagan. Chap left without it. Never came back. Can I borrow it? Paul asked. For the benefit gig? O'Fagan asked. Say yes, said Johnny. Yes, said Paul. Then of course you can. O'Fagan left the bar, went down into the cellar, and returned in the company of an ancient plywood guitar case. I don't like the look of that, said Johnny. O'Fagan placed the guitar case on the bar counter. Paul flipped the catches and opened the case. A beautiful instrument was brought to light. It's a Gibson L1, an acoustic model made in Nashville somewhere between 1926 and 1930, said Paul. Note the handmade pickup and the tortoiseshell dot markers on the 3rd, 5th, 7th, 9th, 12th, and 15th frets. Note the wear on the fingerboard. Gently stroke the veneer. Johnny did so. Gently. What do you think? Paul asked of Johnny. Johnny lifted the guitar from the case, reverently, with care. Johnny held the Gibson to his ear and gently fingered the strings. It's in tune, he said. What a beautiful tone. Good enough for you? Paul asked. Oh, yes. Johnny stroked the neck of the guitar. It was a thing of striking beauty. Elegant. Precise. I can't believe someone would forget an instrument like this, he said. Just leave it in a bar. He didn't exactly forget it, said O'Fagan. He sort of couldn't come back for it. Do you know whose guitar this was? Johnny asked. O'Fagan looked at Paul. And Paul looked at O'Fagan. It belonged to a blues singer, said O'Fagan. His name was Robert Johnson. <laughs>